0: Hi, everybody. This is Steve Hargadon. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2009. This is the second in a brand new series of interviews called Conversations.net. We're sure glad to have the group that's here. It must be early August. This is a small group for us, but we're glad to have you here. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks for downloading it. Um, This is a fun night for me because I'm actually interviewing my brother. So we're going to leave our webcams on webcams on, just for a minute so you can see uh, what we look like. He's the handsome one in the beard.
1: <laughs> I wasn't going to
0: say that. Yeah, I know. You're, you're humble. You're so <laughs> humble. Okay, so um, before we start, I want to uh, just make sure you're aware of a couple of events that we've got coming up. Uh, on August 12th next week, Dan Schauble on personal branding in the age of the Internet. August 18th, Howard Rheingold. August 25th, Tim Westergren from Pandora. This is actually a contact that Andy made for me. Uh, September 9th, Jane Nelson on Parenting 2.0, How to Parent in the Age of the Internet. Uh, September 15th, we're going to talk to Anne Galarin from uh, Europe about the e-twinning program they have there for education. John C. Brown on September 22nd. Dennis Lipke on October 6th. And then still uh, to be scheduled, but committed, uh, we're going to have a special on School 2.0, a PBS show on the future of student journalism. Edutopia is working with us to do a show on educational town hall meetings, bringing the whole community together to talk about um, schooling on a local level. And lots of other fun stuff. Okay, the conversations.net is in part sponsored by Learn Central, a new social network for educators that I'm uh, the community manager for. I want to encourage you to go to learncentral.org. A Facebook-like environment, Facebook-like in scope, helping you find other educators with similar interests uh, with Illuminate baked into the product. A lot of fun to be able to use Illuminate with a free public Illuminate webinar room. So if you've ever wanted to start your own webinar, there's a way to do it. And also with a fairly robust content sharing piece. So lots of fun there. Please visit learncentral.org and support us in that effort. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I want to make sure that you're aware of some of the tools here. Uh, On the top left, you're going to see a participant window. Uh, You you can actually mouse over someone who's there, and if they put contact information, it will show up. Um, uh, It will also show you receiving the mic if you raise your hand and want to use the microphone. You'll see a little mic icon show up for yourself. Below that window is a an icon with a hand and a green arrow up. If you click on that, that's a way of raising your hand. And um, if you want to ask Andy a question, that's how you would do it. Please feel free to use that, especially with a group of this size. Uh, but You don't need to wait for the Q&A. We welcome you asking a question at any time. Next to that uh, hand raising icon are four smaller emoticons, smiley face, clapping hand, confusion or thumbs down. You can use those as well. Uh, the chat area uh, is awfully small. If you decide you want to look at chat in greater detail, go up to View, Layouts, and select the Wide Layout. That's my preferred layout, although it doesn't default to that, but it gives you a little bit bigger view of the chat. You can send private chats to other people in the room. The drop-down box for doing that, but know that Andy and I will both see those, and they're not fully <laughs> private, yeah. so stay nice. Um, And then to the right where you see the quick orientation is our whiteboard, and I'm going to give you a chance right now to use the whiteboard by giving you whiteboard permissions. You'll see a wand with a red star at the end. If you click on that and then click on the map, you can let us know where you're listening from. So I don't know if that Alaska was intentional, but if you're coming in from Alaska, please feel free to shout out in the chat. And let's move, we'll move forward. We'll do a uh, United States map. If you are in the U.S., you go ahead and click again on this map. Okay. Well, California and eastern and western Pennsylvania, we rock tonight. Okay. So uh, this really is fun for me, Andy. Um, I'm going to go ahead and turn the, the webcam off so it's not distracting. Uh, this is a pretty rich environment and the webcam can uh, sometimes be just a little bit too much. Um, sure, fun to have you here, Andy, uh, a lot of fun for me because I think a lot of the conversations that are taking place now uh, tend to actually cross some different boundaries um, and, and bring the two of us into what I think are pretty fascinating discussions and maybe in some ways reflective of this change that's uh, that's taking place um, and could be described with some language that you use. Um, You've been on kind of a blog tear recently. Uh, So would you tell us a little bit about your background and why you seem to be sort of uniquely positioned right now to be talking about some of the things you're talking about?
1: Uh, Okay. I'm not going to lay claim to be uniquely positioned to talk about what I'm talking about, but I'm certainly uh, passionate enough to talk about it. Uh, But my background is... uh, it is essentially, I was originally trained as an engineer, uh, mechanical engineer, undergrad and master's, and then, uh, but engaged in innovation and in particular product design, so I went and I worked in the Silicon Valley for a while, um, sort of interning at IDEO product development and then uh, over to Apple Computer, uh, doing product development and designing a few of the products that came out in the early 90s. Uh, and then got an itch to go back into education and became a uh, and returned to Stanford to do my PhD in the industrial engineering group, which was uh, actually not as as crazy as it seemed in the sense that that was the place where uh, people studied organizational behavior issues around innovation and creativity in engineering settings, which is what I was interested in. So I, I finished a PhD studying uh, the process of innovation in companies. And uh, came out and began to teach at a business school. Uh, I think you know it, to, to make a, what is you know sort of a 20 year trek, uh, a, a three minute background, I essentially you know enjoyed studying innovation as a process, looking at it uh, wrote my uh, book around it and, and around the research I had done through the dissertation and afterwards um, but, began to realize more and more that, in fact, most of the innovation literature was heavily biased towards a fascination with having good ideas. You know, how do people come up with great ideas? Uh, you know, how did they grow up so that they could come up with great ideas? You know, how, how often do they nap? How do they spend their days? You know, how do you manage them effectively so they can come up with great ideas? And very little attention was paid to the things people do uh, after they have a great idea and uh, that, that actually makes that idea something worth uh, pursuing, adopting, joining, sticking around with, and investing in, and other things like that. So rather quickly after, uh, after having uh, sort of written a little bit about how, you know, how, how people came up with ideas, I began to be really dissatisfied with the, the relative uh, balance and focus between having a good idea and doing the things you need to do to make that idea accepted by others. And that's when I started to focus more on what essentially became the entrepreneurial side of innovation, the side that begins with a great idea and, and watches what people do to make that a success. Uh, a lot of, you know, you, you can talk about it in terms of organizational change, change management, or, or you know, new firm formation and, and startup cultures and, and activities. But it all had a similar uh, essence, which is what do people do to make ideas great after they've had them? And that, so I spent the next, uh, now almost 10 years really looking at that and understanding or trying to understand what it is and and the the particular setting I'm in makes it uh, easy for me to focus on scientists and and engineers in university settings and what they do to move their ideas that they've developed out of the laboratory and into the market. so, a lot of my work now has has focused on that as what I think is sort of a very nice, pure form of this challenge uh, and and so you know i think, I think bluntly put i mean cutting to the chase the the notion that there's you know that if you build a better mousetrap, the world would be the path to your door is, is wrong? And, you know i I've, I've said this many times now, but it's you know it's wrong for a couple reasons. The first is that. Ralph Waldo Emerson never actually said those words. He he said, "If you sell better wood or better grain or a bigger pig, people will buy from you instead. Right? You'll find a hard beaten road by your door." Uh, and it was about seven years after he died that a journalist changed the words around and made it a little bit more exciting. But the other reason it's wrong is is there's a wonderful study by a guy Jack Hope who looked at the patent records. And since we started recording patents for mousetraps in 1828. Uh, There have been over 4,400 patented. Of those, only 24 have ever made any money. And of those, there are really only two dominant designs. So the simple story is, in fact, that if you build a better mousetrap, the odds are heavily against anything happening. And I think that's probably roughly similar statistics if you've developed some interesting and publishable research in a a lab somewhere in the the university system in in the US, odds are pretty good that not much happened to it. It might have been an article, but I doubt any, you know, but odds again are that industry never picked it up, and it really didn't have the impact it could have had on society that that certainly the researchers would have hoped for. So a lot of my time has now been looking at what do people need to do to move their ideas out and and get them accepted by the larger audience that they're hoping to have an impact on. Um, So I, I think if you're talking about my most recent blog rant, Steve, it's it's uh, been a lot of a focus on moving science out of the laboratory, and particularly how that's become a very political issue these days with the Energy Innovation uh, Plan, Obama's 150 billion dollar uh, effort to to essentially fund a new generation of technology, energy technology revolutions, and whether or not that uh, that's being spent wisely from an understanding of how innovation takes place and, and how ideas move out of the laboratory. It's a long rant, but I'm going I'm to stop there and let you uh, uh, so bring me back on course.
0: Now, I, I think it's been really interesting to watch you address specifically uh, some of the ways in which the current policies or ideas around how you, how you bring innovation forward uh, don't necessarily mesh with um, what we actually have seen in the past as to, as to how that happens and how specifically with a lot of money being poured into uh, a lot of things right now, and specifically related to energy policy, uh, you're able to see patterns because of your work. But,
1: and I think what's you know one of the things that I'm, I'm involved in and, and seeing a lot is that the policy debate right now is being driven in many ways by two very interested parties. On the one hand, you've got industry, and it's lobbyists. And if you look at the uh, you know, sort of the, the percentage increase in, in lobbying from the energy sector and from uh, you know, the healthcare sector these days, uh, you, you see that obviously they're, they're, they're very active in trying to shape the administration's ideas of how to spend the money that they're thinking of spending. But on the other hand, in the energy sector, you've got on the other side uh, scientists and their uh, their beliefs about how the money should be spent. And 150 billion dollars is, is a lot of money. And you know, and, and the idea of how, how you how you sh- how should you spend that to move the U.S. off its dependency on on carbon carbon-based fuels, oil, natural gas, and, uh, and, and what's the right way to to move us forward? So you've got on the one hand lobbyists who would say, well, we need to fund industry to develop new technologies and, and deploy them, uh, and you've got you. Know, folks like GE who want to get money to do turbines or their wind turbines or their, or their cleaner coal, and you've got, on the other hand, scientists who are saying, no, no, none of those will get us where we need. We need fundamental investments in new basic research, and, uh, and if you spend money on deploying existing technologies, that's money not spent on, on, on us in our fundamental research. So unfortunately the debate has been framed very clearly by two very interested parties at, uh, around what I think is in fact the wrong language and the wrong um, notion, which is that there is such a thing as basic research leading to applied research, leading to deployment or development demonstration and deployment of new technology. Uh, and, and that innovation in fact proceeds in that fashion, moving from basic research through the pipeline and coming out as something to demonstrate and deploy. And so the debate right now rages between two people who are on either side of the spectrum, but both of which stand to gain a lot by winning. Um, And I I spoke about this briefly, but it reminds me of the old story of the the elephant and the blind men. who The the blind men, they're they're blind scholars who, who head down to learn what an elephant is, and they both arrive at a different part of the elephant. You know, one feels the tusk and says the elephant's like a spear. You know, the other feels the a leg and says the elephant's like a tree. You know, one feels the the body and says it's like a cauldron. And the other feels the ear and, and says it's like a, a wicker basket. And then they proceed to argue uh, uh, for the next foreseeable future um, while Buddha laughs uh, because they're so sure that they know the whole by having seen their part. I think it's a it's an instructive parable, again, for thinking about things like innovation, which are very complicated processes, and, and, and those people who would argue that one aspect of them needs to be funded uh, against all the others.
0: So I'd like to sort of direct us toward, you know, this idea, at least tonight, of talking about, um, you know, the, the impact of the Internet on innovation. And so I'm wondering if it would be an oversimplification of that parable to say that the ability of two or more of those blind men to actually transfer ideas from each other would lead to a greater understanding of the elephant. Uh, Is that a a decent segue into some of your thoughts and ideas from how breakthroughs happen?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think, in other words, the, the challenge really does become, how do you get those blind men sharing what they know? And talking about it in a way that uh, gets them uh, away from being pitted against one another and having their scholarly reputations be a zero-sum game, where one is right and the other is wrong. I, yeah, it, it's well, To 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 your point in your segue, you know, a lot of the research I have done on innovation has focused on the uh, how little novelty is actually the uh, the motive force behind most of the innovations we know, and. In other words, what really has made many of the things that we would look to as profound innovations uh, is actually not that they were new ideas, in fact in many cases those ideas existed for decades if not longer, but rather that somebody came along and took these existing ideas and put them together in a new way that somehow met the market need better and really and was able to scale up and have a dramatic impact quickly. Ford didn't invent the automobile, Uh, he did mass production, but really when you look at mass production he didn't invent most of the elements of it. He happened to have the wisdom of going out and finding the people who had done uh, interchangeable parts and machine tools in other industries and brought them in to build his car factory. And then he went down and he watched the meatpacking plant and brought back the idea of the assembly line. And he did, uh, in many ways his He even said it, you know, that his ideas were not new, they were new combinations and in fact if he had tried to do anything new it would have failed because he really did depend on all of the technologies and the the expertise that had developed in the the different markets. He depended on those to be able to put together a system that would work and work at, at a large scale immediately. And, 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 you know, we find the same thing when you look at Edison and the light bulb. You know, it was it was a 30-year-old technology by the time Edison got to it, but he figured out a way to uh, to put it together in a business model that the mass market would adopt. Yeah, And so, and, and, and so I, Go ahead.
0: No, no. Uh, well, I was going to say, so I look at a lot of the phrases that you use in uh, how breakthroughs happen. Bridging, range, building community, technology brokering, recombinant innovation. And I'm wondering to what degree these get impacted by the incredible communication capabilities of the internet? So that's
1: uh, okay, so so yeah, just to come back to that, you know once once you accept the notion that innovations really uh, are are driven by the new combination of old ideas that they represent, yeah, you you get into recognizing that, in fact, Innovation is a networking process more than it is an individual sort of brainstorming ideation process, and it's the ability of to put these ideas together and then put the new combinations together with others, other people, and sort of building new bridges across uh, markets or across ideas, really become the, the, the core activities. Uh, you begin to look at then why somebody is innovative, and and instead of asking what made them such a, a wacky person, you, you begin to ask, what is it about their network that gave them insights and connections to the people and the ideas that they needed and they brought together? And I, I think the, you know, the internet is, a, is an, an incredible tool for that, because now all of a sudden we have access, if we're curious enough, we have access to an enormous number of ideas that are already out there. And we can find them, and, and they flow much more easily uh, as a result. I think uh, it reminds me of uh, a wonderful printed manual that came up in the Middle Ages called the Encyclopedia, which included sketches. It was it was a you know block print, but it included sketches of all of the major technologies of the day: water wheels, windmills, uh, drills, and, and and by including those as sketches, and then printing up and, and passing it around, then anybody anywhere could look at the book. Figure out these machines. They were they were fairly simple, and build their own. And you know, and I think that's you know the, certainly the early days of the web where people were looking at other people's pages, looking at the code, and building their own and improving on it slightly, and then somebody else would come along and do the same. And and I think more subtly that's what we're all now doing. You know, we have the ability to find other people who are interested in the same things we're interested in, who are doing the same things, and and seeing how it is they're doing it. And using those ideas that they've developed to improve what we do. You know, so, On the one hand the Internet is creating a single market in which we're all competing, but on the other hand it's also bringing together so many of us that it gives us all opportunities to, to learn you know, what new ways we can do things.
0: So I'm, I'm thinking as well not only about the expansion of uh, connections and ideas and finding others and building community. But I'm also thinking of the decreased cost in organizing and experimenting, you know, almost sort of the failure is free model. And I'm wondering, does this draw innovation down a level? Meaning, does it I think of all of the people I know who have created something that's made a difference. Say for educational technology, whether it's a social network or a website or a interview series or a conference or whatever it is. Does this, do these trends actually allow for more innovation within a longer tail? Would that be a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, I I mean, I I
1: think the. the tools of production have, have come down a lot. We can all afford to do much more than we could have done 10 years ago, but alone 20. So now, we're, you know, many of us are capable of of pulling new ideas together, you know, old ideas together in new ways and putting them out, whether that's creating a new technology or you know, writing a new blog post, but even publishing, for that matter. Uh, so I think that the Internet as a technology has allowed Obviously, it sort of democratized the, the tools of production in a nice way. Um, in particular areas, in those areas where IT can make a difference, uh, I think it's also given a lot of power to people to to see what's possible in other places. But you know, it, it, I think it's it's important to recognize the limitation. You know, information and communication technologies like the internet, like the personal computer. And, all that we are doing with them now are, are good at allowing us to do some things, but not necessarily everything. And so, there's there still comes a time when you know, I'm going to make an assumption here that you know, when a when a teacher comes up with a great idea for a new way of including technology in their teaching of a subject or in their in, in, in the school. Uh, you know, and they can put together a website, and they can pull in the tools for a wiki and everything, all very easily. But they still have to go back to the principal and the other teachers, and you know, in in, in the time-honored tradition, try and figure out what's in it for them, try and convince them that this is good for them, not bad, and and do the, the you know boots on the ground network building that in, you know getting. That that encourages them to participate, to get involved, or at least to accept this new innovation in their school. So So, so I think think we're left with, you know, the the tools allow us to create things, but they don't always necessarily, you know, they they don't solve the, the whole
0: problem. I agree. And at the same time, I'm intrigued by the degree to which a lot of the innovation I see taking place, number one, is happening as thought innovation. Or um, non-tangible or physical innovation, the creation of something that's, uh, you know, internet-based. Uh, and number two, the degree to which it it um, it cuts across or or doesn't even touch traditional organizational structure, like the teacher who creates her own community around her subject area, in which there's really no formal relationship to her employer. But she feels better and is doing something of good in the same way that somebody writing an article for Wikipedia would.
1: Right. Which is, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think we should probably even bother trying to compare the value of those activities. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, I, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting distinction in innovation between brown fields and green fields, um, and it's right back to the old days of having a factory and, and trying to introduce a revolutionary new process for it. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's I'll, I'll jump into sort of tangible detail on this. One. But yeah, Ford in mass production, originally factories of, of the turn of the century, the end of the 19th century, if you built a factory, you built a steam engine, and then because that was the power that you would use to build a factory. And you built a steam engine, and then you built an entire factory around that steam engine. And you built the biggest steam engine you thought you could possibly need, because you'd never be able to go back and replace it. Uh, and then you built the factory coming off it uh, using a steam engine. And, and at the turn of that century, and Ford was one of the first to take advantage of it, along came the electric motor, which allowed you to design a factory and and simply put electric motors wherever you needed them. And this sort of highlights the conundrum, which is if you're going to innovate, a brown field is a place, is, is a field with, you know, sort of this brown already that has a factory in place. A green field is new and doesn't have anything built, know, it's a meadow. And people all over are faced with the decision, well, should I close this factory down and try and fix it and replace the steam engine with electric motors but still have a factory that was designed for the wrong purpose? Or should I just move out of town, find a greenfield somewhere, and build a whole new factory that's designed for exactly the way I want to do things? And, and you know, today, we face that same problem. Should should that person who's building a community outside of her school and across the country uh, spend her effort in a greenfield trying to develop this entirely new community in, in an entirely new medium? Or in the brownfield of trying to fix her school? And, you know, there's no right answer. There's simply that challenge, and it, and it will exist. But I think you, uh, that uh, I, I think one of the biggest uh, issues we've got is the you know the internet and a lot of these information communication technologies are creating new markets, and we're finding new ways of doing wholly new things. But we're not necessarily fixing the old ways. These are just new. So yeah, I mean, so I, I, I'll leave it for there and see what what reaction you got.
0: So greenfield brownfield is probably a really good way of of uh, talking about education. I've been doing interviews on educational technology for four years now, and we've never talked about greenfields or brownfields. Now we've probably talked about it in other terms, but I'm wondering to what degree is this conversation with you, you know, a professor at UC Davis, thinking about innovation? and and me and our small audience tonight, but if we can project to the larger tech audience, you know, to what degree are we actually reflecting the kind of bridging that potentially leads to innovation or even thinking differently?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, here's where I think it's probably got a lot of value. You know, on the one hand, there are opportunities for for you guys, in, in, in what you're doing, especially Steve, you know, to, to have people share their best practices and their solutions that they've experienced, and allow other people to learn from them. I think not to be underestimated though is the power of finding a community of like-minded individuals outside of your existing sort of network, you know, whether that's a school or a, or a, a district or something else. That provides you with the motivation, the interest, the encouragement, and you know, an emotional support to actually make a change in in what you're doing, or in what you know, try and make a change in the system around you. you know, one of the one of the problems with a focus on on the great idea in innovation is you end up focusing on the person who had that great idea, the you know, the individual genius, and as a result, you. You don't pay attention to, you don't recognize just how important most of those innovations. Uh, you know, just how important was a small community of like-minded individuals to most of those innovations. And you know, you wouldn't realize that Edison had a life, you know, a sort of a lifelong business partner, uh, Charles Batchelor. With whom he shared the royalties on his patents 50/50 during his, his most pro- prolific period. You wouldn't realize that because all the books care about are, are, are Edison. But in fact, he worked alongside a small group of people who were critical to the, you know, to the ideas that came out of his his efforts and their efforts. You know, and, you know not to be flipped, but you know, Lennon and McCartney were a great team. Um, Elvis Presley probably wouldn't have been anything without Sam Phillips, his producer. And so you can start to look back, and, you know, and Steve Jobs, well, originally it was Wozniak, but he was too shy to even talk about his, his first design for the Apple computer. And along came Steve Jobs, and, and the two of them together built the company. And it wouldn't have existed without either of them. But I think you know, one of the important things of these kinds of communities is, in fact, that very support that
0: most people who are interested in change
1: have a hard time
0: finding. So, well, so this is really fascinating for me because, you know, as soon as you say that, I I want to show you, uh, classroom 2.0, uh, or some of the things that we're starting to do with states, where some states that have very geographically dispersed teachers are starting social networks, so that those educators actually have colleagues, or that uh, collegial relationship. And I'm and I'm wondering if in fact I'm overestimating the value of this, or or if it in fact does fit with your perceptions that that these kind of this kind of community building will have a tremendous impact potentially on the ability of these educators to collaborate together and to come up with things that pre- prior to the internet just would not have been possible.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think we're in agreement, probably, because I mean what I what I know, just having talked with you for these last few years about these programs, it, it's um, it really is a is a critical. Um, well, let me get I mean I mean I, the examples go on and on. And I think I talked about one in my book about the impressionists, you know Monet and Gauguin and Renoir and others, who. Uh, who really did work side by side, and there was a you know, and there, and and, and the, the importance of their small, tight-knit group of people in going against the existing art establishment. Uh, it was it was it was in fact what made the difference. And there was a moment where Monet was looking at an old painting and he couldn't tell whether it was his or I think it was Renoir's, whether it was his or Renoir's, because they had painted the same scene side by side that day and using and exploring the same techniques and uh, you know and, and it wasn't until impressionism was sort of accepted that they began to, to split apart from each other and compete with each other but in the beginning they couldn't have succeeded without working together and you know and really you know sort of great quotes about how one person would discard an idea and another would would pick it up and run with it uh, that really, you know, I think, it is, is crucial to understanding how change really happens.
0: That's, that's highly encouraging to me. I think in part because of my experiences with EduBloggerCon, the, which is this all-day unconference we've now held for three years where uh, people get together uh, who had never met each other before but were part of the educational technology blogging community. And I'm feeling as though a very similar relationship exists the kind of experimentation together, the sharing of ideas, and the give and take. And to me, uh, that's actually highly encouraging. Uh, it feels very much like you've just validated uh, this amazing process of exploring that's, that's been taking place.
1: Well, that, that would be nice. I, I would hope so. I mean, I, I think that that's uh, it's certainly been one of my missions to, to push that, that the value of that Small group of people um, not in executing ideas, which is important too, but even in, in developing the ideas themselves and, and, and you know and, and coming together. I, you know I wrote a paper on uh, what essentially you know creative collectives or the notion that in fact groups working together are responsible for more than um, more than we think in terms of developing ideas. So you know, it's a really important point that I would certainly push as well. But the, to the extent that you can find people who are interested in the subject and give them the tools to move forward productively, you know, each in their individual—not to be too dramatic—but each in their individual battles, you know, know that they're that they're not alone. It's really important.
0: So the analogy I've been using lately is the combination lock, and I've been using it with regard to social media, where You kind of have to wait for the tumblers to fall into place for the lock to open, and that you can't really force that, that authentic social media use is about letting those tumblers fall into place, whereas a lot of companies appear to be wanting to just take the marketing value of social media and just rip the door open. So I'm wondering if, if we think about those tumblers falling into place as being necessary for innovation. And you know one is the idea and another is the network, and some of these things you're talking about. If we think about engaged educators who are exploring the territories of the Internet, who are coming up with great practices, what might be the next tumblers that we need to fall into place for large systemic change to take place in education? Boy. so I
1: mean there are sort of technical tumblers there are social tumblers in you know, all of these you know we can talk about the technical tumblers that need to fall into place uh, you know and again it's it's often specific to whatever solution you're trying to move forward with um, but then there's also the social tumblers you know do Worst case, you know, do we need to wait until the, a new generation of people who are more comfortable working with computers, or the generation after that that are more comfortable working, you know, with the internet? Uh, you know, that may be, you know, that's that's sort of the worst case. Tumblr is that you simply have to wait till the new generation that's comfortable with these technologies comes into power. Um, but, but ideally, you know, how do you jumpstart it before then? And, and that's a really challenging question. I, I think, the, the, in, in looking at you know how, how does innovation sort of innovation literature try and understand how do you get ideas to diffuse faster than that? Uh, you know, it's it's actually got a surprisingly counterintuitive recommendation, which is most of the you know a lot of the efforts in innovation are driven towards creating something that's truly revolutionary, and it's going to change the way everybody behaves. But, uh, but really what um, what comes out is uh, that the, the successful foothold, the technology that really finally does get a foothold, you know the revolutionary technology, actually comes in looking very much like the technology that it's replacing. And the best example was Edison's light bulb. Almost everything he did to the design of the light bulb was to try and make it look and act more like gas lamps and less like the revolutionary lighting technology. Uh, you know, he had a 40-watt bulb burning in his lab, and, and he launched with a 13-watt bulb because uh, the gas light was, uh, you know, was was about 12 watts, and he didn't want to come in with a glaring light. What we think, you know, 40 watts, we think is, is mild. But at the time, when you're used to 12 watts, that was a shocker. Um, You know, one of his biggest challenges was the ability to turn on and off an electric light, which prior to Edison you really couldn't do. You you turned off the entire system. But that's how gas lamps worked, so he did that. And if we look forward, you know, we've been trying to produce electric vehicles for a long time, and along comes the Prius, and one of their first uh, sort of pitches is to look them no plug. It's not an electric car. It's just like your gas car. You know, you don't need to worry. You've always got gas in the tank as long as you keep it filled up. You know, it'll be just like your gasoline car. You don't need to pay attention to the electric side of it. And you know, and and for the first five or so years of any new technology, that's you know, it, it's it's easier to get it accepted by making it look like old technologies, and then it will evolve as people begin to use it. And that's what we're seeing with the with the Prius. You know, what you're finding is now Prius under- owners are getting annoyed that they have to fill it up at all. You know, if they're only driving around town, why should they have to fill up their gas tank? You know, how do how, how can they drive it to keep the uh, the electric motor going and the gas engine off? You know, so people adapt quickly once it's in their hands, but to get it in their hands, they need to really understand how it helps them do what they've always done. So coming back then to thinking about social media and schools, how do you domesticate the revolution? How do you introduce it into existing systems in a way that makes you know that it solves their their current you know the current problems of the current people in power. Uh, you know and let let it evolve in use from there. but if it doesn't do it that way, it may never get in in the first place. or it may have to wait for the generation.
0: So how does uh, Clayton Christensen's disruptive innovation model factor into this? Because it sounds like we're talking about the need for adoption and for it to look like it, the technology that it's replacing. But are there times when something doesn't look like what it's replacing and it just sort of wholesale wipes out a previous uh, way of doing things? Well, yeah. You know, that's a
1: difficult thing because the, you know, the model's based on a number of different ideas um, in different industries. Uh, you know, the you know the original study came out of looking at disk drives, but in fact, if you study, if you take a look at the data, you know the new disk drive form factors were actually being used in very different products, you know, along come the portable computers with smaller disk drives uh, and and in the end, when all the dust settled, some of the major corporations who were building disk drives in the you know, at the beginning were still there building them at the end. Um, so. You know, I think it's a challenge. The, the disruptive innovation side is is good when you're when you're an existing manufacturer looking at your product and then looking at a competing technology that does what your product does, not as well in some ways, but but ultimately better in others. And you know, and why is it that you know, you're going to have a hard time making the, the switch to producing and selling what is inherently or ultimately the next platform? You know, it doesn't uh it's not about getting your technology adopted so much as as abandoning your technology and, and you adopting something else. So for schools, I mean, it, it, so sort of thinking about your product. Uh, so who's, sort of if you talk about disruptive innovation in education, what's the product and what's the disruptive product that's coming in that's going to do it differently or better? That's a question back to actually, I suppose.
0: So I think the easy answer to that, and maybe not the fullest one, would be online learning and the adopting <laughs> groups being potentially the underserved populations, the kids who dropped out of schools or who are um, not being served by the current school system, where you're seeing homeschoolers like the K-12 group right. or, or students who are high risk, at risk, out of school who are, who are joining organizations that that do get them a high school degree seems like that's where the adoption's taking place and at least if we are looking at online learning
1: okay, I it. that helps a lot uh, yeah i mean I, I if you look at at the university level you know phoenix DeVry, i mean there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of programs out there now that are doing online learning and competing with uh universities and and um and particularly sort of continuing ed programs at universities that's you know that's a real uh that's a real issue how do we you know and, and I think most universities are trying to understand how can we bring long, you know um, uh, uh, that kind of online learning into the program um, okay so I, I think I get that sense better and then and what you're really looking at is can we accept that it's not as good in some ways but so much better in other ways that that maybe if we simply changed our our criteria we'd be better off. Um, I don't know. I mean I, I, you know, from that perspective, ultimately that still boils down to more of a social and political challenge than a technical one. Online learning is
0: which maybe I think has been a lot of your point.
1: Yeah it's how, I mean so, so let's say you've decided that online learning is critical. What do you do? To uh, um, you know, what do you do to get your your administration or your your university or your K-12 your your school to embrace it or at least experiment with it? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I say I say good luck because no matter how great the technology is, it's still going to be a process of building a coalition inside the school, almost you know one person at a time that it creates the momentum for that change, I think and the figuring out a way to re- reframe that change so that it highlights the value to people and uh, in, in allowing them to do the jobs they already have somehow better.
0: I think that actually may apply more particularly to the idea of using social media in schools, meaning those of us who are highly involved in social media feel like our own personal learning has been reinvigorated, jump-started. The teachers who are trying to do that in their own schools probably face that particular challenge of needing to provide something of value to those who are decision makers. And so my guess is that's very apropos to, to what you're talking about in terms of building that um, uh, that basis for seeing it as a positive change.
1: Now, how do you, now the other piece that we're seeing, and I don't know how this applies in schools is how do you, you know, on the individual level you can show how that's helpful uh, in terms of giving, you
0: know,
1: the social media giving teachers new tools and new communities to work with and reinvigorate. Um, you know, but the larger questions are how does a school get credit for a student taught through distance ed? You know, and, and now you're cutting to the core of, of you know, State funding and you know, school funding and
0: budgets and, and challenges there. So we've only got uh, a little over ten minutes left. So I, there's there's another topic I wanted to bring us to, and so I I think I'm comfortable leaving that for the moment if that's okay with you. Can we can we shift Absolutely. gears slightly? Okay. So um, I'm really interested in the potential for an entrepreneurial renaissance because of the internet. So. Uh, if you were to look at the Internet in terms of other sort of historically significant advances, the printing press or the telegraph, what's your personal sense of the impact the Internet's going to have?
1: Oh, I think it's it's, uh, it's at least equal to, if not greater than almost all of them, uh, in the sense that it's such a profound communications Paradigm platform. Uh, it, it, I, I, you know, the, the thing about it is it's it's democratically available. Uh, obviously, you know, two thirds of the world population is on subsistence farming, so we don't want to make the claim that you know, the internet will make everybody's life better in the next five years. But I th- I do think that, you know it has profound implications. It, there's but the, you know, again, you, you to, i I push to think about it in terms of you know entrepreneurship, you know. the internet is both a a new platform, a new market on which people can create things and sell things. Um, you know but it's also a resource for people who are engaging in traditional innovation efforts. Yeah, so, so so that's where you know the social media and the support for teachers is great because they still have to go back and the innovations are still in the classroom you know and they might bring the internet in but the innovation really is in the innovation effort and challenge really is in getting that particular school to accept that practice or that new computer lab or that new way of doing things and you know and so the internet becomes a supporting role there whereas you know we've got students who who Created, uh, you know, iPhone applications or games. They left and they didn't have a job, so they created. You know, they, they got together and they created an iPhone game and and made a surprising amount of money for very little investment. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, and in that way, uh, the internet is simply a new market. You know, and it, and it still remains. Tw- you know, so ten years later on the internet and twenty years later in the PC world. You know. Uh, uh, a greenfield in which people are you know rushing out and staking claim to a new to a new offering, and that's very different you know so so it has two very different opportunities one to support old innovation and the other is to you know create the space for new innovation. that's why I think it's probably bigger than anything else.
0: so are you actually in your work with entrepreneurship seeing a sense that um, that entrepreneurship is Growing significantly.
1: Uh, yes, it is. It's growing significantly, but again, I, but I think it's actually growing. You know, the other thing that the internet is doing is is shifting the flow of resources away from the more challenging innovations that are in the bricks and mortar, the brownfields, and towards you know the innovations that are quick and relatively low cost. Uh, you know, around the internet, around new software and new offerings on the online. You know, this is a little bit like the you know the concern we have. all of, all of so many smart people went to Wall Street in the last 15 years to make so much money, and you know that they, they you know they got their PhDs in in some engineering program and then went to Wall Street to use that experience to create new financial models that didn't work out very well. You know, what would have happened if they had all gone back stayed in engineering? You know, we're getting a generation of people who are entrepreneurs, but they're they're building new products on the internet uh, and leaving behind, you know, well, what about the rest of life that still has to take place, and, and what would happen if that energy went to, the, to to fixing those old ways? So I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, it's a mixed blessing there. We're certainly getting a lot more things online, and, and online's bringing us a lot more. but, but it's also distracting us from, from still the real problems. You know, now we're getting into, yeah, yeah, I'll stop there. I'll get off that soapbox for a second.
0: Well, so we've only got a few more minutes. If you have a question for Andy, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. Um, Andy, I'm interested in what you're working on right now. I know you're working on ideas around networking. Do you want to describe that at all?
1: Yeah, well, there's a couple things going on, but particularly around, um, you know, again, shifting this focus and innovation towards innovation as a process of networking, really as a process of building new networks that didn't exist before. I mean I think one of the fundamental uh, sort of pieces of advice I certainly give to uh, entrepreneurs, anybody looking to make change happen, is that uh, the the new network, the network is the innovation. Uh, If you're starting with brand new ideas, new technology that have never been done before, you've got a real challenge and and you're certainly not going to have an impact for a while, but if you can find New ways of using old ideas. You know, the real challenge becomes how can you create the network that will get these ideas accepted and get them accepted in just the right way. Some good examples of that more recently, you know, the the iPhone or forget the iPhone, the iPod itself. You know, it, Apple didn't invent the MP3 player; it was about the thirteenth MP3 player on the market. Uh, but what they saw was an opportunity to bring their network that they had already to bear on that on that product, and then build an even better network around it. So you know, they had their network was the iTunes music software and the in uh, the Macintosh operating system, sort of a seamless interface. But then they realized that if they played their cards right, and they did, they could get the record labels involved um, and and be the first to enable online sort of legitimate digital music sales. And that brought value to the, you know, the people who bought the first iPod. And then, you know, after that, getting movies and, and, and photos and video and internet all all into the system, the product, you know, they really built a better network around MP3 players than anybody else did. And you know, and it's a it's a really powerful lesson to learn, you know, because it it shifts the notion to, okay, assume a dozen other people have the same idea as you do. The one that's going to succeed is going to be the one with the better relationships. It's the one who's got the connections. Who has the ear of the people in power or who has that first customer who, who cares deeply about it. And you know, and is able to build a set of relationships around their idea faster than than the others. And I think what we're you know, what you can really see when you watch innovation unfold is that the the best technological solution really doesn't mean much without the right network around it to move it forward. And I think that's just so, so, so now all of a sudden, you know, it's, uh, you know Mary, uh, Mary Beth, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's not what you know, it's who you know. But, but it's who you know and, and how well you know them. Because in fact, what you're going to ask them to do is something that they've never done before. So how do you bring people together in a way that changes their behavior uh, and advances your agenda? How do you get the record labels to, to finally concede and sell their music online through your iTunes music store? And that's the that's the real creative, you know, the sort of the real creative side of the process is figuring out the ways in which you can put five people together in a room that wouldn't have ordinarily gotten together to advance an agenda that they didn't know they had and all somehow see that it's in their best interest and get something out of it. And, then, you know, and ultimately that becomes the real, that was Edison's ability to get J.P. Morgan and other investors to buy into the system, to get the New York City to allow him to, to bury his lines underground you know, to get the first set of customers to allow him to build a demonstration project.
0: Those were the real, I mean, that's the real challenge in innovation. Hey, Andy, it's always really fun to talk to you. We're about four minutes away, and there's another webinar coming online at the top of the hour. So I think let's finish there. Okay, and part of what we've been able to do tonight, I'm clapping for you, is to actually (laughs) record and hold online the kind of conversations that I really enjoy having with you. And so, uh, you know, I really appreciate your coming on tonight and talking about it. I think uh, it's a lot of food for thought for me related specifically to education, but also just in terms of innovation and the internet. And and my own kind of wondering, um, you said something recently, I'm trying to remember if it was on the interview that was uh, in the New York Times. You said something like, uh, innovation is rational in retrospect. And I'm, and I'm very curious to see you know, how we're going to look back at this period of time and what kind of rationality we'll see. It's hard for us to decipher right now, but which will become clear later. So thanks for doing this tonight.
1: Well, thank you, Steve. I hope I, hope I made some sense. It's certainly fun.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so we're going to we're going to pause there. I'm actually going to turn the recorder off because of those of you who are here for the um, for the Sue Waters RSS deal. Uh, Durf is asking, when is Andy's next at Illuminate? So Andy, the next time you want to hold a session like this, it doesn't even have to be with me moderating, but if you have something you're interested in talking about, feel free to, to contact me and I'll show you how to do it, and we'll we'll have you uh, up and running and Illuminate in no time. Thanks to Illuminate for providing the space. Thanks to you for coming. Please do visit Learn Central. Um, please do um, uh, look at our schedule. I'm going to go back just briefly to our schedule of upcoming events just to remind you we have some fun things coming up. Thanks for attending. Thanks, Andy, and we'll see you uh, in the near future.
1: Thank you. Thanks a lot, Steve.